Let us hear the word of our God. Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You know, as we've been making our way through the Psalms here, and it wasn't that many weeks ago, we were also looking at 1 Samuel in the evening and so forth. And, you know, when we're in the Old Testament, sometimes uh, all the focus on uh, things that have happened thousands of years ago and all the uh, teachings to Israel and the Jews and so forth, sometimes we may wonder, well, how do we fit in this many years later, all the way over here in Western PA? how about Gentiles? What's, what do God's promises have to do with us and so forth? Well, thankfully, even in the Old Covenant, we have hints, uh, passages every now and again that speak to Gentile inclusion. And Psalm 117 is certainly one of those. And so we will look here today briefly at what that teaches us. Now, Uh, As we come to Psalm 117, we come to the end of uh, these 30 psalms that I've wanted us to look at here in this uh, segment. And so we will will draw our study of these psalms to a close today. And uh, we started it, though, in June of 2021, and now 75 sermons later we come to this point. And so uh, that's an average of two and a half sermons per psalm, some like today, do it in one. Some I did in two. Some were longer than that because either of length or significance. Um, But as we've studied the Psalms, remember some of the things I said at the beginning. Many people have considered the Psalter to be the most important book of the Old Testament. Now, I might quibble and say, what about Genesis? But uh, uh, all the books are important, but certainly the Psalter is, is very significant. And it's so important because it covers every doctrine in the scriptures, in one way or another. Many have called it a mini-Bible, just here in these 150 psalms. Chronologically, um, we see a general flow from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, and uh, in particular, as we look at each of the five books, and they have their overall themes and messages. Now, I decided from the beginning that I didn't want to just focus on one of the themes, say, book one, and spend 41 sermons more or less talking about the same basic theme of book one. There are other themes, and, and so that would have been beneficial in that way, too. Uh, but I decided instead to take about 20% of each of the five books so that we could, through this whole process over the last year and a half plus, that we could uh, hear each of the different themes from the different books and learn from it in that way. And so uh, if you uh, have Palmer Robertson's handout here, let me uh, have us uh, go over it again now that we are drawing this to a conclusion. And uh, remember, the five books are subdivided according to what the text says. It's not something we're imposing. But these different terms that Palmer Robertson's have used, those are his terms, and, uh, and they are, I think, helpful, uh, but certainly not uh, authoritative. But in book one, as you look at the first diagram on, the, on the, the next page here, remember he talks about the theme of confrontation. 
And that David is established as king in Zion there in Psalm 2, but he faces much opposition. And so many of these 41 Psalms speak of that opposition. But we learn that we can trust God, that God is with his people, and even though people are against us, we can rely on him. Now, 20% of this was basically Psalms 1 to 8. And so we looked at that. And the first two Psalms, of course, are, are very fundamental and foundational. Psalm 1 about the law, Psalm 2 about the Davidic king, David initially, the Messiah ultimately. We ended with Psalm 8, which uh, precedes an acrostic. And you might remember that three of the four times in Book 1 there's an acrostic. It's preceded by a creation psalm. And so we uh, ended with that one. Seven of the eight psalms we know are written by David here that we looked at, and possibly Psalm 1 as well. Which leads us then to book two. So if you turn over here on the handout, we come then to the theme of communication. It is still about David as king, but he is more established. And uh, though there is opposition, um, you might say it's a bit more positive, so to speak. Um, And the more he is established, uh, we see then the the book ending with Psalm 72, where there's this pinnacle of thought. It's the Psalm of Solomon. It's about the Davidic promises. Everything are great. But as we go through this book, the the difference, uh, another difference, and one of the key differences from book one, is that there is more of an outward focus. There is this Uh, witness to the nations that you don't see in the same way in book one it's there it's just not as much as we see in book two and so even the nations must worship Israel's God you might remember the the key name that we see in book two is not Yahweh but Elohim or the name God Um, and so that fits with that that uh, outward focus so we looked at first uh, or Psalms 42 to 48 Uh, which emphasize God as king, that we are to obey him amidst our struggles, and the Gentiles must as well. Uh, These seven psalms we looked at were written by the sons of Korah. And remember that Korah was one of those men who rebelled against Moses and Aaron, and the earth opened up and swallowed up him and his family. Um, But at least one survived, and uh, we see these psalms Uh, written by them now in the third book you remember on to the next page that the theme here is one of devastation Uh, we end book two on this great high of the davidic promises and then we come to book three and it's like everything is totally undone the theme of sin and judgment and exile for the northern and southern kingdoms are what we see here and even god's people are subject to judgment if they turn from god Now, we looked at Psalm 73 and 74, and we saw, especially in Psalm 73, that when sinners prevail and succeed, it can be hard for us to live by faith. Now, book three ends with, uh, you might say, the opposite of how book two ends. Book two ends, the Davidic promises, everything's great. Book three ends, Psalm 89, the Davidic promises, where did they go? How come they're not being fulfilled? How come we're in exile? So then book four, recall then, the theme of uh, maturation, as Robertson calls it here. While they're in exile, with all the good things and outward forms of religion gone, they had to go back to the beginning. 
Go back to the source, and that is God. Focusing on him, trusting in him, and not the outward forms of religion. And uh, so to be reminded of the basics, we saw in Psalm 90, this Psalm of Moses, that we're all sinners, and we're not going to live very long, because the wages of sin is death. Psalm 91, we don't know for sure who wrote it, but um, our only hope in the midst of all of this is the one who is judging us. The one who judges us for our sin is the one we put our faith in to save us. Our covenant Lord keeps his promises to his people, yes, by cursing the disobedient, but then by blessing the faithful and even blessing the disobedient when they repent and turn to him. And so book four then ends with this plea that God would return them to the promised land. And so in book five then, in Psalm 107, we see the answer to that prayer. We see this return from exile. And so book five is filled with much praise. Yeah, there's praise before this in the other books, but book five especially emphasizes this. And so we see it in Psalm 107. Our section here, Psalms 111 to 117, we've been looking at recently, and certainly many others. And so though we sin, God keeps his promises. Though we may change and run after idols and other things, God doesn't change. And he blesses in spite of our sin. The Davidic promises that seem to have been gone are continuing. The Messiah is going to come. And so even though they went into exile, even though there is no king on the throne, even after they come back, we see these things are upheld. Now, we, of course, have looked here in this book at Psalms 107 to now 117. And the key one here is this hallelujah section, and that's obviously been our focus here recently. This emphasis on praising God for his character, his greatness, his presence, the salvation from Egypt that he has brought, uh, the fact that he is greater than the idols, and that we can trust him, we can call on him. These have been our themes here in these last Psalms. And so therefore, let's praise him, let's live for him, let's fear him. And, of course, as I've said several times now, remember these psalms were sung by Israel during the Passover. Plus, remember during Passion Weeks, Jesus refers to Psalm 110, and on Palm Sunday, as we call it, the people referred to Psalm 118 at the triumphal entry. So, as I review this for us here again, okay, I, I haven't done this thorough of a review for a while, but Remember, we need to see the big picture and not just focus on the individual psalm. And so as we have the forest, so to speak, and we'll turn to the last of the trees we're looking at here together, Psalm 117, uh, both messages are important for us to understand and thus to live by. So for all of this emphasis that I've just said on Israel, on David, on the promised land, about uh, all these things, we may wonder, well, how do we fit into that? We as Gentiles, we as those who are not Israelites. Well, there are um, actually several, but there are a few 
very significant passages in the Old Covenant that speak about the Gentiles. Let's start with the first one, and that is in Genesis 12. So let's turn there just a moment and uh, look at this, uh, if you will, these opening words to Israel. Remember, prior to this, there was no Israel. Prior to this, it's it's Noah, right, and, and Adam and Eve, this, this, this big picture, the whole world idea. And now God brings everything down to one man. And at the very beginning of that, he's still talking about the world. Notice Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so again, right at the beginning, when God basically ignores the world to focus on one man and one nation, he still has the world in mind. So let's turn a moment then to Galatians chapter 3, for Paul... uh, references this. <coughs> in Galatians 3, let's start in uh, verse 7. <coughs> he says this, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed, Genesis 12, verse 3. So that those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And so Paul here then says, look, that statement in Genesis, again, when God goes from the world down to one man, still has the world in mind. And that, of course, includes us. So as we come now then to Psalm 117, this is another one of those passages that speaks to this topic. For many of us, probably Psalm 117 is just the answer to trivia questions. Hey, what's the shortest chapter in the Bible? Or what's the shortest psalm in the Psalter? Well, Psalm 117. Yeah, okay, two verses, 17 words in the Hebrew, actually. It's very short. But it has far more significance than just answering a Bible trivia question. So let's look here then at this uh, psalm a little bit this morning. And so in our handout here of the psalm, obviously I just have one outline because, you know, that's all you need. <laughs> hey, verse 1, call the Gentiles to praise. Verse 2, the reasons why. And then you end with hallelujah. So we're still in this hallelujah section. Note the name of God is Yahweh again, just like we've seen uh, here in this section. Uh, no other name is used actually here. Notice also verse 1 begins with Yahweh, verse 2 ends with Yahweh, and then the two lines in between have the pronoun. And then, of course, it ends with hallelujah. So uh, arranged very deliberately. And then you'll see some of the other pronouns uh, that are used, especially the three commands. And two in verse 1 and then the final hallelujah. All right, so um, pretty straightforward here for our structure Notice again, there's no author, so we don't know for sure who wrote it. Uh, There aren't too many guesses, but those who do guess, they would guess David. But we don't know. We don't know when it was written. Um, 
for those who do guess, typically they guess it was after the exile. So obviously those, those two options don't go together. Um, but for what is clear, though, it's obviously placed here in book five. After the exile, after they're back, after the Davidic promises are reiterated and so forth, there is this emphasis here on the Gentiles in this hallelujah section. So every year when Israel was singing at the Passover meal, they were singing about Gentiles and how they related to Israel. So what does it say? Verse 1, praise Yahweh, all nations, laud him, all the peoples. Obviously, we have two lines here, and obviously, they are rhyming, as we call it, parallelism. Uh, They are so similar, you have to call it synonymous, right? Praise and laud, Yahweh, Him, nations, peoples, obviously, uh, it's, it's very, very similar. And so there are these two commands to praise right from the very beginning. This isn't a suggestion, take it or leave it, right? The gospel's not an offer, it's a command, And here, this is a command for the world to praise Yahweh. And so the you plural praise, that's the first line, the the nations are who he's talking about. The you plural in the second line are the peoples. Um, As I just said, these are synonymous, but if we want to see a distinction, uh, then the distinction is probably this. Nations is referring to everyone in general. But the peoples then are referring to the people groups, to the ethnic groups, the tribes, or something like that. Now, let me just digress for a moment. We hear ad nauseum in our culture right now about racism. There are no races. There is one race. We are descended from Adam, okay, and then through Noah. There, There aren't multiple races in our world. There is one. So there is ultimately no such thing as racism. That said, there are multiple ethnicities. There are multiple people groups. And uh, so we take, uh, certainly we acknowledge that, but we need to define it carefully. But the point here then is that the psalmist is saying all non-Israelites must praise Yahweh. Now, notice the two words for praise. The first one is the one we use for hallelujah. So it's the halal there. That's the same. The second one is a different word. And so I've translated it differently as laud. And the New King James does the same thing. Your translation may do it similarly. Um, And then notice that it's the full name of Yahweh there in the first line. Praise Yahweh. It's hallelujah, not hallelujah. And so it's a little different than Uh, the hallelujah word. Uh, Maybe that's because he's speaking to non-Israelites and he uses the full name, not the poetic name. Uh, But whatever the case, everyone must praise Yahweh. Again, it's a command. You're judged if you don't. So then verse 2 says why they should do this. Because his covenant love is strong over us and the truth of Yahweh is forever. Now, the psalmist could have said a number of things here, right? He could have said, nations, you need to praise Yahweh because he made you. He is your maker, your creator. He doesn't say that. That would fit more in book two, possibly. 
He doesn't say that here. He, he could have said, nations, you need to praise Yahweh because he is the only sovereign. There are no other gods. All idols are nothing. He could have said something like that, but he doesn't. He could have said something like, praise all nations, the God who controls all things, right? In his providence, he gives you rain in a season. He gives you a place to live and food to eat and so forth. He could have done that, but he doesn't. What he does do is say, praise Yahweh, because look at what Yahweh is doing for Israel. Note that pronoun at the end of the line. His covenant love is strong over us, meaning Israelites. And so the Gentiles who are on the outside are to look, if you will, on the inside to what God is doing with Israel and then praise Yahweh for it. And so because of this relationship with Israel, the nations should praise Yahweh. No other God has done this what Yahweh has done for Israel. God has done this with no other nation at all. And notice that his covenant love isn't just, you know, something generic or lightweight. No, it's strong. It prevails. It is superior. It is great. It is mighty. This is the the idea here. And and to give you the kind of the general sense of what he's saying is it's not going to change. It is sure, even though they had just been in exile, even though there was this loud message that Yahweh does not love Israel, uh, yeah, actually he does. His covenant love is strong. It's not affected by the sin of his people, ultimately. And then in the second line here, the nation should praise Yahweh because the truth of Yahweh is forever. We come now to the second key term. I've, I've mentioned many times over the years there are you know, about a handful of very important covenant terms. And the first one was in the first line. That's chesed, right? Covenant love. And the second one now is here. This is emeth, truth. Okay? Um, God is truthful. God is faithful. He is reliable. Okay? He is uh, filled with veracity is another term we use here for this. Um, simply God made his promises to Abram. We just read that in Genesis 12. And then to Isaac and to Jacob. God made that promise. He proclaimed that truth and he's faithful to it. And nothing is changing that. It is forever even. Israel's sin can't change God's promises. The exile and their turning to idols cannot change Yahweh, cannot change his promises or his covenant. Now, idols don't do this. They don't do anything. The so-called gods don't do this either. They are fickle. Can you imagine having to worship the Roman gods? I mean, that would be terrifying. Yahweh's not like that. He is not selfish. He does not change. Only Yahweh is like this. Only his promises are forever And so everybody should praise Yahweh for this. Now notice how these two key words are put together. We just saw that, if you turn back to chapter, uh, or Psalm 115, verse 1. Remember these words, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Right? That's chesed and emeth again. 
So there it's for Israel. We are to, as Israelites, we are to praise Yahweh. And now, here's Psalm 117, as Gentiles, we are to praise Yahweh for his covenant love and truth. These are the central ideas. Without them, there is no hope for any of us. So the psalmist here then is simply saying, okay, nations, observe. Pay attention to what's happening over here in Israel land and praise Yahweh for this. You might say, he's telling them, you're on the outside, but focus on what's going on in the inside. Or if we could put it this way, it's like the Gentiles are sitting in this big stadium and watching the game down on the field. And so the psalmist is saying, hey, Gentiles, watch that, you know, and yeah, you know, shout and raise your hands and pump your fists and, you know, act like idiots, so to speak, in the stands, you know, be, be excited about this. Praise Yahweh for what's going on with this game on the field, what he's doing with Israel. Now, that's the initial message. That's the message of Psalm 117. The psalmist is going somehow. Maybe he sent an email to the local king or something nearby. Uh, maybe he went there and actually proclaimed it in their marketplaces. You know, we don't know exactly what this is, but you see how he is going to the nations and commanding them to praise Israel's God for what he has done for Israel. But doesn't this hint at something more for us? Remember, we have these uh, hallelujah psalms, this so-called pyramid. And preceding and following, we have Psalms 110 and 118. And so the son of David, who is David's Lord, precedes this. And that son of David is going to come as the chief cornerstone and be bound to the altar and provide salvation. And everyone is going to say their hosannas. And not just on Palm Sunday, but even among the Gentiles, they're going to say this too. So, you know, even in the section of the Psalms, we hint at something more. But certainly as you combine it with other passages like Genesis 12, and as we turn to the New Testament, we obviously see there's something far more than just Gentiles, look what God's doing to Israel, how he loves them and so forth. Now, in the Old Covenant, obviously, there were a few Gentiles who were able to, as it were, go down on the field and play with the home team and not just sit in the stands. We have Rahab. We have Ruth. We have Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. We have others. But for the most part, in the Old Covenant, the Gentiles are sitting in the stands or not even wanting to come into the stadium. <laughs> okay, But... Um, there is more here, and certainly when the Messiah comes, there are big changes. So let's turn now to the book of Romans, and uh, first of all, chapter 15. <clears throat> Romans 15. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to start a study on the book of Romans, so I'll say more about structure next week. But the end of the main part of Romans is this section here in Romans 15. Let's start reading in verse 8. Romans 15, verse 8, <clears throat> Paul says, Now, I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God 
to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Now, did you see those two key terms there? Mercy and promises. Chesed and emeth. Okay, same ideas. Do you, do you see how Paul is already saying the same thing as Psalm 117? So then he, he uh, quotes first from uh, the, the, uh, Psalm 18. For this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. In verse 10, this is from Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. Verse 12, from Isaiah chapter 11. There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who, uh, he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. And then the last verse here, again, of the main part of the book of Romans is... Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The you there refers to Jew and Gentile. So Paul takes this uh, idea from Psalm 117 and related passages where the Gentiles are on the sidelines and the whole book is about how the Gentiles are no longer on the sidelines. Okay, they're no longer in the stadium. They're actually part of the game, so to speak. So let's turn then to Romans 4. And let me read a little bit here. <clears throat> in Romans 4, and uh, notice how similar this is to Galatians 3. Uh, but let's start reading in verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness... How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Now let me pause there. Okay, that uh, line there in verse 9 is a quotation from Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham wasn't circumcised at that point. Fifteen years later in Genesis 17, he is circumcised. Okay, And so this is what Paul is addressing. So then verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, righteousness might be imputed to them also. So the fact that Abraham believed and was justified while uncircumcised means he can be the ancestor of all who believe, even the Gentiles. So then he says in verse 12, And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So obviously, natural descendants of Abraham who are circumcised, if they believe and if they walk according to faith, then they are descendants of Abraham. True spiritual descendants. So not all Israel is Israel is part of his point there. Okay, let's turn to chapter 11 a moment. And uh, Paul does not use the image of a stadium, but he's in many ways saying similar things here. In Romans 11, starting in verse 13, he says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. 
For if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump also is holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And he goes on, and there's a lot to say here. But do you see the point? The Gentiles weren't even part of the tree. But the non-believing Israelites were cut out of the tree, and the Gentiles could be grafted into it. And those who believe, and thus they are all from that root of uh, the ancestor Abraham. Or again, to use the image of a stadium, right? some of the players on the field were kicked off the team. And some of the Gentiles in the stands are now allowed to come to play in the game. And so, again, Psalm 117 is saying, you in the stands, praise Yahweh for what's going on down here in the field. But as we come into the New Testament and the coming of Christ, now we can be a part of that. Yes, it was there in the Old Covenant, but not the way it is after Christ came. And so let's turn then, lastly, to Ephesians chapter 2. For Paul says similar things here. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, and let's start in verse 11. Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without hope, or excuse me, without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Right? Again, up in the stands or even not in the stadium. <laughs> but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And he has made both, that's Jew and Gentile, one. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him we both, again, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. You know, many of the food laws and clean and unclean laws were designed to keep Jews and Gentiles separate. Now they're gone. We don't need them anymore. So that's what Paul's speaking to here. All right. <clears throat> Let me end here this morning with two thoughts. First, for the last generation especially, though we can go back even to Finney and Schleiermacher and such and so on, but especially for the last uh, generation, seeker-sensitive services have been very common in the American church in our Protestant churches. But according to Psalm 117, I think we have it all backwards. All right, what is the seeker-sensitive uh, mantra all about? Well, okay, we need to reach out to unbelievers. We need to make them feel welcome when they come to the church. We don't want to do things that make them feel uncomfortable or make them feel like they don't know what's going on. Okay, all right, there's some 
something to be said for that. But this is why in many churches, we don't use hymnals, we just put it all up on the screen. Or we don't even use our Bibles, we put it on the screen or in our bulletins. It's for some of these reasons. Um, But, of course, for many, they go much further than that. So we need to have music that sounds like the culture. And so we have all these praise bands and such, and it sounds like the world's music and so on. And then they'll preach in such a way that is more entertainment-oriented rather than content of the scriptures-oriented. And, and I could say other things. But do you see how Psalm 117 speaks to this? Psalm 117 is saying, unbelievers, look at what God is doing with his people. It's not saying, those of you playing the game, do it in such a way that you can include people in the stands. It's the seeker-sensitive approach is totally backwards. What we need to be doing as a church and what we try to do, even what we need to be doing as, as Christian families, is that when we see unbelievers, we should show them the truth, play the game, so to speak, the game of Christianity, be godly, focus on what God has done for us, and as they watch and observe God can use that to work in their hearts to say, you know, I want part of that too. I want to I believe in this Jesus too. If we focus on them and water down the message and change what is so great about his grace to us, why are they going to want to be a part of it? It makes no sense. So the seeker sensitive services, I, I think, misses the whole point of what Psalm 117 is getting at in terms of this focus. And then the second thing uh, to end with here tonight, or this morning, is to say this. In God's providence, I did not really think carefully through the fact that I would end with Psalm 117 before I went to Romans. But isn't this a fitting transition? I just read quite a bit from Romans. (laughs) And Romans, in many ways, is an elaboration of Psalm 117. We end our study of the Psalms with this theme of Gentiles watching grace and praising God. We're going to begin next week a study of Romans with how the Gentiles and Jews are both saved in Christ. We, as Gentiles, are no longer on the outside looking in. We're on the inside. And we, too, receive blessings of God's covenant love, and his truthfulness and faithfulness. We too are part of the promises given to Abraham all those roughly 3,000, 3,100 years ago. That's such an amazing, amazing thing. So a few thoughts here today. First, a summary, and now here specifically uh, about this psalm. So Lord willing, next time then we'll start with Romans. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you for, um, for your word, and we thank you for the, the big message, as it were, of the Psalter and these various themes and these overall ideas that we have seen here, and we thank you for that, that great blessing that uh, people like Palmer Robertson and others have done, especially in the last generation, to help us to see this, this broader point, something that has been obscured for centuries, really. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you then especially for this message of this psalm. 
that we uh, don't just have to sit on the sidelines, but that we can be a part of this and, and as Gentiles. We thank you, Lord, that even as you narrowed your focus to one man and excluded all others, um, that even then you had us in mind. And, and we are thankful for this, Lord, and grateful that we can be a part of your kingdom, of your family, and uh, uh, receive your grace uh, here in these ways. So Lord, may we then give you the praise that you deserve, and may we take this message to the unbelievers around us and show them how great it is to be a part of this team, so to speak, that they too might be enticed and encouraged to come repent and be a part of of your family and uh, the grace that you have shown to us so we pray these things lord and uh, uh, pray that you would seal these truths on us uh, that it might not only fill our minds but our lives and uh, that you would be honored by it all we pray all this then in jesus name amen